You know, if there's any challenge that I think we face, uh, both public and private sector, state and federal, it's how do we get people trained? How do we get them into the workforce if they're not there? How do we reach people in communities that have been overlooked? Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. This week, we take a look at U.S. energy and climate policy from a state-level perspective. Joining us this week is David Terry. David is the executive director of the National Association for State Energy Officials, NASIO. He talks with my colleague, Morgan Hickman, who works on our Clean Resilient States project here at CSIS. They talk about how states are working together regionally and with the federal government to implement sustainable and innovative solutions for a wide range of energy policy issues, including transportation, workforce development, grid resiliency, energy efficiency, and much more. And then they also take a look at how states engage on an international level, most recently at the climate meetings in Glasgow. I'll turn it over to Morgan now to lead the discussion. Well, thank you so much for joining us, David. It's been an exciting year for climate and energy policy among states and at the federal level. Uh, The recent annual conference of the National Association of State Energy Officials this October covered many of those exciting topics, from energy efficiency to energy storage and vehicle electrification. I thought we might begin with some of your takeaways or highlights from the conference. Sure, and, and it's a great area to focus on, I think. we, When we structured this meeting, we do it with the input of uh, governor's energy directors across the country, all of our members, the 56 states, territories, and District of Columbia, uh, governor-designated energy director. And almost all of them are focused in a, a number of key areas in energy that you saw in the conference around resilience, reliability, affordability, decarbonization, um, certainly uh, equity issues. And I think We tried to blend the agenda in two ways and and got a great response from it. One was on the priority areas they've been working on already, which have a lot to do with infrastructure, frankly, the energy transition that's underway. That includes everything from beneficial electrification, renewables, new efficiency technologies, uh, certainly affordability issues, but a lot of confluence around the grid in one way, shape, or form, whether that's transportation electrification, renewables, new efficiency technologies, uh, load shifting, storage. There's kind of a panoply of items and they all came together there. We structured it actually to mirror some of the infrastructure bill items that we uh, saw President Biden sign this week, uh, even though the conference was back a month or so ago, and really just so we could tee up that conversation. And I think the big takeaways that we had, uh, the states see this as an opportunity to really accelerate in general what they're already doing, fill uh, major gaps. That might not be the right word. Some of them are pretty big gaps. There's probably a, a gulf there in some cases of where they have need resources, often where they need planning and, and really specialized technical help from the private sector. And so when, when I run through sort of the takeaway list, I think they do go in, in an order of resilience, affordability, equity, decarbonization, and innovation. And wrapped up in that are, I think, some of the things that the energy offices who are often responding, reporting to their governors, thinking about economic development, about workforce, about security and safety of the energy system to make sure they don't have a reliability issue that puts people's lives or livelihoods at risk. Well, thank you so much. That's a terrific high-level review. And so I guess to summarize, I hear I hear a lot of attention to uh, resilience and reliability, affordability, decarbonization, workforce, and innovation. And of course, these are all topics that are 
gonna gain some attention and be eligible for funding under the bipartisan infrastructure package signed by President Biden on Monday of this week. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how NASIO and states are gearing up for this funding. Do you have a sense of whether states are prepared to spend or distribute it, prioritize particular projects? And finally, I wondered if you had any topics that you think states are or should be particularly enthusiastic about under this new funding program. Great questions. Um, I think maybe to start with a little bit of an overview of how we got here. Uh, NASIO has a history of working on a bipartisan basis with Congress and certainly across our members to move forward energy legislation and have done so for uh, well over 30 years. One of the core components of the infrastructure bill and one of the core components of the state's work with the federal government is a program called the U.S. State Energy Program. These are very flexible dollars that go out in formula to the states each year, very modest funding level typically in the appropriations process. Um, in the infrastructure bill, uh, the states will receive $500 million by formula through this particular program. It is really the catalyst for much of the work I just discussed. And we've been working with uh, both Democrats and Republicans in the Senate and House for a number of years to uh, help educate them, inform them about the critical nature of this particular program. A good portion of the funding will be dedicated to grid planning, both distribution system, transmission planning, which is essential for all those things we just talked about in that resilience and decarbonization and affordability area as one example. Um, those funds are also used for building efficiency and building energy codes, for promoting beneficial electrification where it makes sense in, in states across the country, for workforce development, a whole variety of issues. So when we came to the infrastructure bill, many of the pieces you see there are bills or ideas that we've been working on for a decade. In terms of getting ready, I think it's on two fronts. One, in areas like building energy codes, grid planning, transportation electrification, the state energy offices have been leading in those areas for many years. They've been working on transportation electrification for almost a decade. The Volkswagen settlement funds that came out of the Volkswagen diesel case, as an example, um, many of those dollars went to the state energy offices for electric transportation planning and some implementation with the private sector. There's a lot more to be done. And that's where the infrastructure bill comes in. And that partnership that the uh, states have with both the Department of Energy and the Department of Transportation through the state departments of transportation will be really critical in implementing those funds. So that's an example of we've been doing work here. We helped tee up the work in the infrastructure bill and the states are ready to run with it. I think that is certainly true in the buildings efficiency area, in the grid planning area, in the energy emergency preparedness or energy security area. Um, uh, certainly, I think one place where we all have a lot to do and I think uh, is challenging is, is workforce and supply chain. Uh, that was a problem before COVID, frankly, the workforce portion in the sense of having the right trained workers there. And if there's any challenge that I think we face, uh, both public and private sector, state and federal, it's how do we get people trained? How do we get them into the workforce if they're not there? How do we reach people in communities that have been overlooked? Communities of color, uh, low-income communities, urban communities, rural communities. We need everybody there. We need everybody trained and pulling in the same direction. So that's an area where I think we have some more work to do. That's terrific to hear. I want to return to something you said about uh, workforce and supply chain. And in particular, I'm thinking about the last big infrastructure deal, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And um, under that act, there were some challenges regarding um, implementing the Davis-Bacon requirements for prevailing wage and also the Buy American provisions. And I was 
thinking about um, this new infrastructure package and how those requirements are still around. And I was wondering if you had any key lessons from ERA that state energy officials or private sector interested parties might be thinking about to be ready for those provisions. It's an excellent question, and I, I think our members would be thrilled that you asked because they've been raising this issue since last summer, frankly, and we continue to raise it. And I, I have to say it's, a, it's an area we're concerned about in terms of speedy implementation or efficient implementation, uh, not because people aren't capable of doing it, but you know there are rules to play by, and we follow those, and we want to make sure they're clear and that they're done in a, in a way that reflects the digitization, frankly, of uh, some of the work that the state's are already doing. So taking those one at a time, I think with regard to Davis-Bacon, the state energy offices are familiar with uh, certainly complying with Davis-Bacon requirements. The big lesson learned when we came out of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, or ARA, at least with regard to the Department of Energy-funded programs, all of the Davis-Bacon documentation had to be done by paper. It was not digital in any way, shape, or form. They were learning as well, to be fair. The other challenge we had is for many of the energy categories, including conventional energy, not, uh, not only renewables and efficiency and new technology workers, but conventional uh, nuclear power plant uh, workers, et cetera, the wage rate categories that were available um, at the federal level were not consistent, and in some cases not available. It took a long time to establish those. We still have some of that work to do. That is really a, a federal state partnership that needs to begin. Uh, we certainly have been uh, sharing that with Congress and the administration. The second element is uh, that digitization comment. Uh, there are commercially available platforms for tracking and dealing with the reporting on Davis-Bacon to make sure folks are in compliance, which is certainly what the states intend to do. Uh, but we need clear federal guidance on what's allowable, what systems are allowable, what's needed and required. So we're ready to run with that. I want to follow up about Davis-Bacon. I'm wondering if states that have enacted their own prevailing wage legislation for renewable energy projects are at an advantage in implementing this requirement as the infrastructure package is rolled out. I think perhaps, but not necessarily in the sense there's everybody's going to comply with it. Um, we, if you look back at ARA and at least the state energy offices, there were effectively zero <laughs> violations. So it, it was extraordinarily well run. It, and that, if anything, that's gotten better. So, I, I mean, will it help them a little bit? Probably, but there is the reporting piece. And it is, frankly, the challenge is less the compliance than it is the reporting piece. If you're getting the federal funds and that's the requirement, clearly that's what folks are gonna do. But the reporting element, to the extent that it's cumbersome, that it's not modern, that it doesn't reflect the kind of uh, digitization that many of the states have done, uh, but that if that if that isn't reflected in the interaction with the federal partners, then that will be a challenge. And I, I think that is the the rub. You know, there's certainly still a workforce availability issue. That's a whole other matter. But that, I think that that is here no matter what what we do. And the Buy American piece. Yeah, the Buy American piece is is really challenging. And who doesn't you know who doesn't want to achieve that goal? I mean, it's it's a tremendous goal. We saw during COVID. We knew before COVID this was an important piece. It was a part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act some years ago as well. I think a couple of notes though, and I will say at the start, I'm not a legal expert in this area, but the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act didn't key off of the Buy American Act, which is a term of art, a particular act. There are are processes that have been in place for many years. There are allowances for certain uh, trading partners, think Canada and Mexico, for example, um, but ARA didn't really follow that construct. This bill, from what I can read, doesn't precisely follow that construct either. So how it's going to be implemented is the question. 
And the second piece of that is we are obviously in a, in a very difficult place from a supply chain perspective in almost every area, which may make it difficult for any manufacturer. Certainly, American manufacturers have to get some of their supplies elsewhere, or conversely, they may have demand so high already that it's going to be difficult to meet that demand. So there is a supply chain expansion capability that needs to be added, and the private sector will figure out what's the appropriate way to do that and, and the appropriate level of response. But it also does raise the question about to the extent that there is a near-term infrastructure need, uh, say a, a safety or economic or reliability issue that really needs to occur right now, those things need to be at the front of the line. They will be competing with other items. So there is a cost issue um, associated with this as well that has to be balanced. And I think, to be frank, it's way above my pay grade. What we have communicated to the energy offices is you know, we don't expect a lot of waivers. We don't know the process. That hasn't really been um, defined well at this point. And there are certain types, at least within the energy sector, there are certain types of equipment on the grid, certain types of charging and electrical infrastructure that are generally not made in the U.S. So we have to figure out what are we going to do about those and how important are they? And to what extent do we delay them so that there is manufacturing capacity added? And I I think that may be one of the more important state-federal conversations. It won't speed things up, that is true, but I think it's important. The president and I think Democrats and Republicans on the Hill um, certainly agree that this we need to get more manufacturing done here, especially critical products in, made in the U.S. So I think everybody wants to row in that direction, and, and we, we have to make allowances and, and be realistic about, okay, well, if we're going to do that, what time frame do we have to work with? I know that's more questions than answers, but we've been thinking about that for at least three months and communicating that as clearly as we can, uh, recognizing that we, we need our, our federal and private sector partners to weigh in and let us know their views and how we move it forward. Very good. Staying on the infrastructure package for another moment, uh, you mentioned that some of the funding is earmarked for states on a formula basis with all states eligible for a certain share. Um, but some of the other funding in the package is competitive. And I wondered what states should be thinking about to maximize their competitive edge. A really, really good question. And we, we had a lot of those questions from the states going back a few months ago. And we've actually prepared a document for each state, which outlines uh, not every item in the infrastructure bill, but the, the items that are most important to most of the energy offices, both the formula funding they'll be getting, um, some of the funding that they may be interested in competing for, and some of the funding we think their private sector partners will be interested in competing for. So they're already thinking about the opportunities. I think the formula piece, the state energy program funds, um, as a primary example, one of the things about those dollars traditionally that thankfully Congress has understood and this administration understands, they make a lot of the other projects happen. So those SEP dollars go into planning, into financing, into uh, really catalyzing strategic investments. And some of the strategic investments will be in competitive areas. So for example, where competitive funding may be available in smart manufacturing or advanced manufacturing, a state energy office may determine that they want to put dollars in, both state dollars and potentially some of their SEP dollars or other funds to help really advantage a project because maybe the, the particular group of manufacturers or labor resources they have in their state are unique um, and they feel like they have an advantage. So what we've tried to do is to provide the states with the information about these competitive opportunities so they can begin thinking about, okay, well, we have eight or 10 opportunities in front of us. What are the three or four that make sense for us? And how do we work with our in-state private sector to make those happen? And I think that's kind of the exciting part, frankly, because you see the 
the state leadership in various areas, which are often very discreet. You know, I think often from the outside, if, if you don't follow state energy policy closely, I can look a bit monolithic. The states that have decarbonization stated goals and those that don't, it, it's not nearly that clear. I always think about the extraordinary level of renewable energy production in Iowa, which is, is often overlooked, and in Texas. There's a new uh, plant in Nebraska for some, to produce something called carbon black. It's a, a commodity product, very carbon intensive. There hasn't been a carbon black plant built in the U.S. in many years. They're doing it at almost zero carbon basis. It goes into products like car tires and so forth. And off, the offshoot is, is green ammonia, which is related to green hydrogen. So some amazing opportunities they're thinking about uh, building energy codes is another important area. The other piece, and I think it's something to the energy office's credit, uh, they really led on this and, and got our attention on it about three or four years ago. Uh, they asked for an equity committee to be established before equity was a very popular word in energy and environmental circles, at least here in DC. And they've been working this issue. How do they infuse their programs and their policies with a consideration of, you know, do we inadvertently design this just for wealthy people or just for a particular community? Or did we ignore a community of color uh, inadvertently? Are we really, you know, have we thought through this? And it's complicated. But with regard to those competitive programs, they're bringing that same lens to those. How do we look at these and maybe we can advantage a community that's overlooked? And I, one of the most exciting stories I've seen, the Mississippi Energy Office about a year and a half ago kicked off something called inclusive innovation. And they're working with their historically uh, black colleges and universities in the state to help move entrepreneurs that are innovating in the energy sector to draw them in and to uh, help them uh, innovate and commercialize their products. And there will be opportunities in the infrastructure bill for that kind of activity as well as one example. And I, I just think, you know, we wouldn't have done that 10 years ago. And what an oversight. It's great to hear. The Conference of Parties in Glasgow just concluded, and officials from at least a dozen states participated in that event in some capacity. But there's still no real federal climate policy in this country. States lead. And it sounds like under the infrastructure plan, and, and perhaps before that, states have been um, angling to specialize under the energy transition. Do you think that's a fair characterization? And do you think the public sector and the private sector are sort of rallying together to do that in different parts of the country in a way that is useful to the energy transition at a national level, even if it isn't deliberately coordinated that way? You know, it's, it's a complicated question, and I'll, I'll try not to give a, a, an equally complicated answer, but I, I think a, a couple of things about this. It's interesting to me that when I, in conversations here in Washington, D.C., which admittedly have been mostly uh, Zoom and remote for the last uh, nearly two years, which maybe, maybe uh, doesn't make them quite as accurate as they would be otherwise, but I still hear a lot of comments and statements from public policy folks that maybe don't focus in the energy sector specifically that seem to miss what's happening in the private sector in the states, except in some, you know, really notable areas that are in the news, you know, big tech companies certainly making huge advances, but a lot of everyday companies trying to address climate in their, in their own way and in serious ways. And I, I think that gets overlooked. And similarly, we see that among the sort of state federal view. And true, the, the federal government has, has gone backward and forward from one administration to another. And there's generally been uh, progress, I think, maybe not uh, the kind that we need. I think there'll be more. But the private sector and the state and local government movement on, on climate, I am very heartened by. 
Um, we see efforts in almost every state to address this, and they may they may refer to it in a different way, they may approach it in a different way. Uh, but you know, Louisiana is working hard on carbon utilization and capture to reduce their carbon footprint. They provide a lot of the petrochemical and refined products that are used in every state in the country. Yet they need to address uh, this issue directly, and they're doing that in their way. Similarly, uh, Wyoming has been working on carbon utilization strategies, frankly, quietly, and I think unnoticed by many for quite some time, both the state government and the private sector. There are certainly uh, very bold examples in California, in New York, in Massachusetts around building energy codes and zero emission activities around buildings, around the grid, around renewables. And in Michigan, the transportation electrification strides that the Energy Office and the state of Michigan are making are remarkable. Colorado, quite similarly, the policy innovation at the state level in Colorado is remarkable, I think, in the energy sector. Um, more detail than we have time for today, but I would really commend folks to take a look at it. And it, it doesn't mean our job is done and the federal government needs to do nothing. That's nothing to be further from the truth. But I do think we need to, believe it or not, continue the conversation so that people don't miss what is being done uh, and that there are different ways to get from A to B. Sometimes it's mandates, sometimes it's regulations, sometimes it's incentives. Sometimes it's an agreement and the, with the private sector. And I, I think keeping an open mind about that and pressing the urgency of action is the right path forward. Um, I, I want to ask a question related to that idea of different states that you just described with different maybe specialties or, or priority areas. What are the primary avenues that states are learning about innovations or or useful ideas among one another? Do you think that exchange is primarily regional or national, and um, of course, NASIO is a terrific resource, but where else should states be looking to learn from one another? One of the things we, we, it wasn't a surprise to us, but we heard from states around the infrastructure bill as just one example. What technical assistance do they want? The assistance they want is talking to the state or local government or private company, whether it's in their state, the state next door, or the state across the country. And so that sharing of innovation, both in program design, policy design, and actual technology innovation and market activities is always high on the list. We accomplish it a number of ways, and I see states accomplish it sometimes with us, often with us, thankfully, because we, we enjoy our work, uh, but also with others. And so I'll answer it in a couple of ways. First of all, we try topically to tee up things. So for example, a high efficiency, low sag transmission cable, it is a mouthful, but basically it's really resilient, high efficient, meaning it doesn't have a lot of line loss uh, resilient cable. It's not that common in the U.S., even though U.S. companies lead the way in manufacturing it, and it's hugely cost-effective in the transmission area. You can carry twice the load on it. Our members have heard that story. They've been sharing information about how to implement projects and talk with their utilities, and that has been, as much as anything, it's been you know from one state on one side of the country to one on the other, from projects in Texas that the uh, utility AEP has undertaken to projects in Montana that they're thinking about. It's really a technology perspective it crosses states. In other areas, transportation electrification leaps to mind. The so-called Rev West states, uh, there are 
eight weathered western states, uh, Utah, Idaho, Colorado, Montana, New Mexico, and I will forget the list. I apologize. You could look it up. Uh, but uh, they've been working together for at least the past three years. A governor approved and led activity by the energy offices and in some cases in partnership with uh, their departments of transportation on the siting and uh, collaboration needed around transportation electrification infrastructure. So along highways, along corridors, they're sharing information. In that case, it's a different region because it crosses sort of mountain. It doesn't go as far west as California, uh, but they are working together. They are absolutely learning from each other. The other regions took notice a couple of years ago, and they're in some ways replicating it. We have a group now, states southern uh, in the southeastern United States, led by the energy offices with a similar sort of a structure. So I think that's a good regional example. And then I think in terms of working with other organizations, there are national or at least larger solution sets in the financing area, for example, where commercial pace uh, for private sector commercial building efficiency uh, may be delivered by a number of financing companies in partnership with the states, in partnership with local governments. And so that technical assistance is maybe broader and has more of a private sector flavor. So it, there are a lot of good examples. So I think they're getting their information from each other. We hope we facilitate that a lot. They're getting their information, their collaboration with the private sector in particular. And frankly, some really talented people, at least in our case, uh, at the Department of Energy, both the political leadership, but also often the unsung career staff who have institutional knowledge or uh, frankly, just a commitment. Certainly the National Lab's technical help is a big deal. That's important and strategically using that, that you know, that valuable sort of scarce resource in many ways uh, is another big part of the puzzle. So we, we try to coordinate that. I will say one one last thought on this is that it was a lot easier when we had these neat little silos of renewables, fossil generation, buildings, transportation. It's all converged now. And so the pulling apart of that is the challenge that our members uh, work with every day. And it's pr probably the exciting part of their job. You've mentioned a couple of times efforts to ensure that the benefits of the energy transition are made available to everyone. Could you talk a little more about how the metrics around energy justice or equity have evolved? Are states coalescing around a common framework for equity and inclusion in energy? I think for our members, I think I mentioned earlier, we established an equity standing committee. It started as a task force, I believe, nearly four years ago now, became a, a standing committee. Those meetings pre-COVID were standing room only because I think people are still learning in our area about this, about how intuitively they know they want to do the right thing. They know they need to listen to those communities, whether it's rural or communities of color or, or whatever the case may be. They need to listen to their needs. And I think the common thing that we hear is to start there. From a metrics perspective, and this conversation just came up with our, our most recent board call that we had, which is a good representation. It's almost half the states. And I think that is one of the fundamental questions they're asking themselves. What are the metrics that they can use that tell them how they're doing now and how fast they can do a better job, in effect? They want to keep it reasonably simple so that they can track it and that it's real and it's transparent. So one of those metrics will be where the dollars that they have are spent uh, by zip code, for example, so they at least know where they're going. They need to know how the program is designed. Is it meeting a particular need? Is there an income need? Is there a technology missing that would reduce the, the cost of a particular energy activity, retrofit activity? Is it a workforce item? So in the community they're targeting, what is what is the gap that they're filling? So I think we are still, it is a work in progress in short of figuring out what those other metrics are. I think the other metric that's out there that states are thinking about is maybe a little more qualitative, but 
it's when they've designed a program, maybe it's a transportation electrification or it's a, uh, an energy storage project for resilience. You know, what's the economic and social and health risk of a particular energy system? Maybe it's a community or it's a utility system or it's maybe it's liquid fuels for that matter. And if we're addressing one community's vulnerability with that, what have we done for the other communities? Who's really at risk here? Are we responding because somebody has been allowed about outages or allowed about that risk? Um, maybe it's a hurricane prone area or something like that, or are we responding because there really is a risk there in that community. We're addressing it in a fair and equitable way. And there are metrics around that certainly, but it's also this, the pausing and stopping and thinking, are we pursuing this policy because that's how we've always planned a resilience investment? Um, or are we pursuing it because we stopped and looked and said, okay, well, who's really at risk and who, who goes first? We've talked a lot about public-private partnerships today and advancing the infrastructure spending opportunities and also state energy goals. I wondered how energy equity factors into public-private partnerships. I guess in a, in a couple of ways. Well, I'll go back to the public-private partnership portion first. One of the reasons we like those is because uh, there's one, there's never enough money to do everything you need to do or want to do. So it's it's necessary. Two, the private sector is exceptional in a lot of things, but scaling, delivering to a broad market, whether that's a community within a state or it's a statewide activity or even a larger market, they're really good at that. And using their strength and their capability just makes sense. So that public-private partnership is kind of clear from the get-go, whether it's about money or, or delivery or the effectiveness of that delivery. I think where equity is concerned, making sure that we have a workforce and entrepreneurial um, support systems so that there are companies, private sector companies from underserved communities that are a part of that solution set. I think that's a piece of it. A second part of it, I think, is to make sure, at least with regard to financing, that we're looking at different ways of public-private financing. If it's addressing a low and moderate income community, I'll give you a, an interesting example that we're working on with New York, uh, Washington, D.C., and Minnesota. It's an inclusive solar project, community solar project, and it's looking at low-income communities and where can we bring different streams of federal, state, and private resources together in a low-income community to weatherize the homes and businesses, that is to say, make them efficient through insulation, through lighting, through HVAC, et cetera, to lower their energy bill and lower their energy demand, add community solar in a way that it's financed so that over the longer term, the overall cost of energy for the community comes down, and then drawing on those people in the community to help with some of the workforce needs to implement some of those components. And that's a, that's a lot. That's a, a big sort of piece and we're figuring it out, but it has the it has a couple of advantages. One, it's addressing a community that needs help. Two, it's bringing new technology in. Three, it's looking at cost effectiveness from the perspective of not only the individual resident and what they can afford, uh, which may be very little, but also state, private, philanthropic, and federal dollars that may need to support those communities' uh, basic needs. So it's really kind of an efficient community-wide approach. And I think that is a public-private partnership, and it includes for-profit public, or excuse me, for-profit private, it includes nonprofit private, and certainly public. So that's a great project. It deserves more time, but that's a, a very high-level snapshot of it. That's terrific. We've covered a lot of topics today, and uh, before we part, I just wanted to give you the floor to talk about maybe the coming year and energy topics that you think are on the horizon that warrant attention. Yeah, I think one of the issues that I've seen in the most recent sort of policy debate that's underway and in everybody's desire to uh, take action on climate and the energy sector is a big part of that, whether it's people's end use energy at home or, or production extraction industries, et cetera, uh, the amount of energy that goes into things that we all use 
I am finding more and more often energy efficiency is getting lost in that conversation. And it's not that anybody disagrees with it. I think it's, it, it is natural to want to jump to important technologies that we need to invest in here and now, whether that's green hydrogen or carbon utilization or renewable energy. We have amazing offshore wind activity going on with our states leading along the East Coast right now, um, as an example. But energy efficiency is part of that equation as well. It brings down the cost of almost every other action we take. And I think that's getting a little bit lost in the conversation. So our, our state energy offices certainly haven't gotten lost on that. They're aware of it. They're raising it. So I think elevating energy efficiency as a climate solution is one of the pieces that we're going to, we'll see talked about more, integrating that with these other technologies. And I, I think that will be a big issue. The second one is, I think, a little bit more exciting, compelling. The in, on the innovation front, there are so many new technologies that are coming into the market that are beginning to look very cost competitive or are cost competitive. Um, offshore wind, I just mentioned, is one example. The prices that are coming in for power bid in to the initial uh, wind farms being built offshore is dramatic and low, and that's going to continue. Another company we heard from about a year and a half ago, just before COVID, frankly, uh, solid state cooling, which is a really innovative new technology. We don't have time to go into today, but it is a game changer. It is akin to the LED light bulb, and it will take some time to make happen, but we will. So that's exciting. I think there are a lot of these spaces where the one of the biggest differences, kind of coming full circle to one of your earlier questions about what we learned from ARA, the private marketplace is so different now than it was a decade ago. We have so much smart innovation, so much, frankly, investment money in that space, and, a, and an interest and appetite on the part of businesses and consumers to take a look at those technologies, that that is the exciting part. I, I think transportation may be the most exciting part of that just because it is certainly storage and, and a lot of other things come with it. But those are the things we're focusing on along with uh, all the other items I mentioned. And so we, we don't have a, a narrow lens, as you can tell, which is what makes it interesting. But uh, if it were easy, we would have done it a long time ago. So we'll keep at it. We're glad you're keeping at it. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks to David and Morgan for talking to us today about the key role that states are playing in energy policy. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, for updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening.